Thank you, ladies. Uh, what beautiful music. And welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. I couldn't help but run through uh, a memory or an instance years ago when I was in seminary. I, I went to, had the privilege of going to school with Philip Muteti, who uh, is an African man. He was a bishop of a, a denomination in Africa, and he only had 45,000 souls to care for. And he told me once, he said, Andy, in America you start on time. In my country, we start when the people show up. And I thought, boy, I've got this clock in my head, and I'm thinking, oh, it's like we're going, we're going late. Wayne doesn't have that. He's going to preach what the Lord has led on his heart, so we're here until we go over and have a meal. So relax. He's going to feed us with God's word. We're going to worship in song, in prayer, in reading God's word, and we're family. You might be visiting with us, but you're welcome to come. We have a fantastic Mexican meal, but it's more than just Mexican. It's Mexican because that's Sue Ellen's favorite food. And we are honoring them with a 50th wedding anniversary. It, uh, it's beautiful. Um, you walk, you're going to walk into the fellowship hall and just be astounded at what the ladies have done to make to turn it in from a concrete building to a beautiful celebration because we love you guys. Yeah. And we want to honor you, and I know Wayne's going to say more about it, but there is one, two words of caution. Because we are honoring them, let's let them go at least kind of first, but we have special seats for you. And it's so you can sit down and have people around you but moms and dads, everybody else that likes cake, there's no cake for you. Do not touch the wedding cake. Look at it from 30 feet away. There's cupcakes for us, but the cake is for you guys. Regardless if you have a slice or just bring it home to feast later, but I have been warned and said you must make an announcement. Do not touch the cake. Look, but don't touch. I was nervous because I had to bring it over there from the refrigerator in the cottage, and I thought, if I trip, I'm joining another church and, fret, and, the, <laughs> and probably have to go into WITSEC or something. Cause... Yes, yes, there, yes. And in, in the five-piece band is over there, and... And the checks in the mail. Oh, by the way, it should be Sue Ellen's board rather than the board Sue I will. I will get to it. For your hundredth anniversary, I'll, I'll make sure it's right. Okay. Um, in the bulletin, we have some some uh, announcements. Ladies are starting a new Bible study. Gordon will be teaching on Second Peter and Jude starting next week. And I thought I had one more. Yes, Timothy Meyer has entered our world a couple weeks ago, uh, but there's a crib shower downstairs for him. So if you brought something, you can put it in there. And I'm so glad we're here to worship together. I love this time of the week. Busy week for all of us, I'm sure. But to come and take a break, to hear wonderful music, 
to see smiling faces, to have God's words open and preached to us and sung to us. Brothers and sisters, we're blessed beyond belief. And uh, may God bless you today as we gather together here, but also over there after the service. Well, let's worship the Lord this morning as we sing some of the hall's favorite hymns, starting with number 656. Let's stand and take our hymn books and sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Second Samuel says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. 656.
that's a way to start prayer, isn't it? To think on these great truths, and we're thankful for Luther for recording these for us. These hymn, this hymn that he wrote here to remind us of the great truths that is in God's word. And as I sing through it, I'm just flooded with the the the, the thoughts of what, of the truth of God's word. It can be very difficult at times to think about the world in which we live and things that seem to be falling apart. But one thing to remember is his kingdom is forever. It is my prayer that you know Christ. That's the word that you need to know, Jesus Christ. We will be singing about Christ. We'll be praying and we'll be preaching about Christ today. I want to give you a moment to think on those things, to prepare your heart to hear and heed what Christ would say to his church today. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at to prepare your heart to worship Christ, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we as your people have gathered here today to praise your holy name. You have given us another day in order to do that. A day that's been set aside, a special day in which we remember the victory over sin by Jesus Christ our Lord. The grave could not hold him. He rose on this day and we worship you because of our union with Jesus Christ our Lord. Indeed, he is our Sabbath rest. And from age to age, he, he is the same. He will win the battle he already has. And he stands in great triumph in the heavenly, even now. He functions as our great high priest. And so it is to you we go to this throne of grace. The world seems to be failing and falling apart from our perspective. Many things are not going right in the way we would hope they would. But we know in Christ there is great victory and triumph, that your truth will never change because it is indeed truth. It is indeed absolute. I pray that you would grant us great faith to truly believe, to truly trust, and to, to have a peace in our own life and heart and mind that passes any kind of understanding because it is dynamically granted to us through the work of the power of the Holy Spirit in our heart. I pray, Father, that if there be anyone here in this auditorium or any outside that might be hearing and listening in, I pray that today if they're outside of Christ, they'd be brought in drawn near to your presence through the glory of Jesus Christ who is on display in everything that we do. I pray, Father, that the seeds of your truth would be planted deep in our own souls and the souls of those that we love and that are around us, that it would flourish and bring forth great life and great fruit 
to abound to your glory. Cause each one of us to be more conformed to the image of your Son. What a glorious truth it is to know that you have called us out of darkness into great light. And so may we not be overcome by that which is evil and outside of your glory presence. I pray, Father, that we will stay within your presence, abide with you, and receive fullness of joy even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can remain seated. Let's take out our inserts. If you didn't grab one, there's some in the back. And uh, we've been focusing on Psalm 103, uh, the first 11 verses of Psalm 103. <clears throat> and we're going to sing that again here in a minute. I want to just remind you of what this is talking about. There's, David is celebrating the Lord's faithfulness uh, in his life, specifically in verses 3 through 5, 5 through 7. He's calling out in the, uh, the faithfulness of the Lord to the nation of Israel. And then all the way through verse 11, he's talking about just how merciful and, uh, and forgiving our Lord is. If you look at verse 3 in our insert, it says, God the Lord is, uh, is full of mercy, slow to anger, full of grace. He will not be always chiding. Chiding there means not constantly accusing. He, because of his love and his forgiveness, he doesn't remember and hold grudges against us. So chiding means uh, not constantly accusing us, nor in anger hide his face. He deals not by our demerits, nor repays us what sins deserve. Great his love to those who fear him high as heavens above the earth. And so let's sing this again, and in a couple of weeks we're going to take the second half of this psalm and, and break it out and, and sing it to the same tune of God our Father, we adore thee. But remain seated, let's think about these words as we sing this again, and uh, let's sing, Bless the Lord, my soul.
good singing. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand and turn to number uh, 453. 453, leaning on the everlasting arms. The God of old is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33. morning church what a beautiful day to praise the Lord this morning we're going to be reading uh, a lengthy bit of scripture we're going to start in Acts chapter 14 verses 4 through 28 Okay, you had me there. Whew. All right, I drank some extra coffee for that. Praise the Lord. Okay, okay, 24 through 28. All right, good. Okay, so that's going to be page 923 in your pew Bible. If you don't have your Bible this morning, 923. So 28. I was reading John Owen this week, and I just want to read a couple <clears throat> quotes from John Owen's book, The Glory of Christ, because that's why we're here this morning. And just three three passages really 
struck out at me and uh, struck out to me. But this has obviously been modernized from uh, the old English. But I want to read this before we start. <clears throat> John Owen from the, the Glory of Christ. One of the greatest privileges the believer has, both in this world and for eternity, is to behold the glory of Christ. No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not, in some measure, behold it by faith in this world. On Christ's glory I would fix my thoughts and desires, and the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. Let's read scripture together. Acts 14, starting at 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rode up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is what we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For every ancient, 
For from every ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious day that you've given us, Lord, to come worship together. We thank you for the many blessings that you've given us, God, that we do not deserve. We're totally depraved in our sin apart from Jesus Christ. We want to thank you, Lord, for the sound of children today, the sound of children playing. And we pray, Lord, for the salvation of our children today. Lord, we, we ask that you help us to preach and live a worldly example, a, a word faithfully and example in our homes to set a God example for our children. Help us to glorify Christ and point them to Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. <clears throat> help us to be servants, Lord, in all aspects of our lives servants of the gospel of Christ, servants of one another in the church. Let the world see a set-apart people living for the world to come and not for this world today. We thank you again, Lord, for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition. We ask, Lord, that you bring more brothers and sisters in Christ who desire holiness and have a hunger for your scriptures. We desire, Lord, to exalt your name today. And we ask that you open our hearts and minds through worship and song, but most of all through the preaching and reading of your word. We ask today that you break hard hearts and save anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Lord, as we go to work in the marketplace this week, give us the strength and opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Help us to be servants, Lord, in all aspects of our lives. We ask, Lord, that you bless the offering today and let us use it for your glory alone. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen.
Well, let's take our hymn books and stand once more and turn to number 414, Softly and Tenderly. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. 414.
Amen. Thank you, Blake, ladies, and church. I was about to come home, listen to that rendition of Abide With Me. Thank you, ladies. It was, did that work, Gordon? Yeah. It's now mine. Especially when you have strings and a piano going at it. <laughs> it's a great truth, I and mean, I hope you know that. I hope you have a longing for Jesus Christ and to, and to be with him and to truly know him. If I could cause that to happen, I, I would. I think it was, oh, I don't remember now, J.I. Packer, if I get it wrong, somebody correct me later, wrote a book, Knowing God, something to that effect. And that's good, uh, and we need to know him. And you do so by knowing about him. But the knowing that I'm talking about is a real, genuine relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. And that unique, dynamic relationship is brought about by the person of Jesus Christ through what the preacher of Hebrews here is going to call the New Covenant that he's made with his people. You can find the explanation of it to some degree in Hebrews chapter 8. I might recommend you turn there. We're really continuing on this because there's, I I don't know how many will address on this particular subject, but I want to look at this new covenant one more time and, and perhaps another In verse 6 of chapter 8, the preacher talks about this covenant that Christ has inaugurated, if you will. He says it's better. He's comparing it to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and ultimately because of the better promises, and that's the focus. We've talked about that before, verse 10, God's going to put the law instead of externally, he'll put it internally, God will actually be their God. They'll recognize God for who he is. And we're going to focus on this verse 11 today, where this somewhat enigmatic promise, this better promise, is is this. And this is what I want to focus on. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's the knowing God that I want to talk about. It emphasizes a true and personal relationship with God mediated by Christ through this promised covenant, contract, agreement. If you remember, the preacher here at in Hebrews, is very concerned about his particular congregation, mostly Jews. They were embracing the rituals of Judaism that was part of their culture. And they were tempted to to go back to that. Although the symbols of Judaism, the rituals pointed to the substance of Jesus Christ, the reality of him, but yet 
there was a lot to these rituals and symbolisms, and they, they, they wanted to embrace them as well. But the preacher warns them. Remember some of those warnings, chapter 2. He says, we have to, we have to pay really close attention lest we, we drift away from it. Imagery of drifting out perilously in a sea. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's what's at stake, life and death. He says, take care, brothers, in chapter 3, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There is only one living God. Instead, he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ, indeed, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's a great warning. They were in danger of forsaking Christ, the author of the new covenant, to go back to the old one. This danger is because the old covenant was not a redemptive covenant, as we've already talked about. There's nothing in the law that's going to bring about life. It'll bring about death. It isn't that there's anything wrong with it. The law is good, holy, and just. The problem is you. And when you measure yourself against the law, you're going to find yourself falling short of the glory of God. You'll find yourself to be a sinner. And the wages of such is death. So no wonder, it's almost an understatement to say these are better promises of what God promises then in the new covenant. The, the old covenant was, was a covenant given to a particular people group, a kind of a show-and-tell religion, if you will. And to be a part of it, you were just brought up in it, as, in the family. It, it was just part of your culture. It, it was part of your ethnicity. You weren't necessarily redeemed. You could be, but you weren't necessarily redeemed to be a part of that covenant. The new covenant is totally different. As we've pointed out thus far, God will do a work in the heart. Instead of having a list externally, he'll put it internally where you have a different desire, a different affections. The preacher of Hebrews is reminding them that then this covenant is, by contrast, a better covenant. This has been promised. They knew of Jeremiah's promise in Jeremiah 31. And now it has arrived in Christ in its accomplishment and its fullness. And it's calling them to fix their hopes on the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Let's read it in its context, but our focus will be verse 11. I'll just begin again where I started last time, and that's verse 6 in chapter 8. About Jesus Christ, he says he obtained a better ministry. That is, as much more excellent than the old, 
as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's, it is enacted on better promises. By the way, those better promises which we'll look at are redemptive. That's the point. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. Why? Because for they didn't continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And they shall not teach one, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will give us insight into your holy word. Speak to each in the way we need to hear from you and respond today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. At the onset, I think it's important to emphasize once again of what is meant here by this new covenant. It isn't that God is doing something he has never done before. That's not the point. The point is the contrast between this redemptive covenant and the old covenant. God has always mercifully redeemed his people by grace. Do you remember in the reading that Rodney picked up here? It it, it said it a couple of times, about how God saves. He saves by grace. It's always been that way. God has always redeemed people by grace through faith. Prior to the death, burial, resurrection, and I'd add ascension of Jesus Christ, the faith was in the promise of God to do so, even though they didn't clearly understand it. Well, now it has come to to full light in the revelation of Jesus Christ, as he ratifies that promise and that covenant, he seals it in his own blood. Listen to Luke twenty-two twenty. 20. Jesus takes this, this cup at this Passover, this symbol, this ritual that they would have been familiar with and involved with for years and years and years. And he takes this cup, he takes the cup of blessing, and he says, this is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. A a covenant must be ratified. It must be sealed. It is sealed in the very blood of Jesus Christ. The preacher of Hebrews is going to end this sermon with a doxology of sorts in this way, in his benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working 
in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great way to end a sermon. But I'm not finished. <laughs> that was him. This new covenant initiated by Christ here, fulfilled by Christ, if you want to think, is sealed by his blood. It supersedes the Mosaic covenant, referred to now as the old covenant, in contrast with Christ the new. Verse 13 in our text, did you see it? In speaking of a new covenant then, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see the obsolete, growing away, ready to vanish away? So you can understand the idea here. Why would you go to that old covenant? It's been replaced, superseded, fulfilled by Christ. And as I mentioned, it's not new in the sense that God has doing something that he's never done before. This is just a different dispensation or administration of his grace. I'll give you a couple commentators on this. A.W. Pink. The new covenant referred to in Hebrews 8, he says is not the new covenant absolutely considered. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not new in that it's a brand new idea. It's not new in an absolute sense. And it has been, and he uses this term, virtually administered from the days of Genesis 3.15. That's the promise that God would send a seed, a seed of a woman whose heel would be bruised, who would, in doing so, crush the head of Satan. What a great imagery. He says, in that promise, then, the apostle is treating of such an establishment of the new covenant as demanded by the revocation of the Sinaitic constitution. That He's talking about the old covenant. What is the establishment was, is made clear in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. It was the ordinances of worship that were connected to it. That's what they wanted to go back to was those ordinances of of worship. Those are obsolete. They're vanishing. They are fading away because they are distracting from that reality, which is Jesus Christ. When Christianity, he says, goes on to say, had been formally established by God, not only was the old covenant annulled, but the entire system of sacred worship whereby it was administered was set aside. And by the way, it wouldn't be a few years from here. I'm not sure when Hebrews was penned, but prior to the destruction of the temple, probably mid-60s, temples destroyed in 70 A.D., By the way, since that time, none of these things could be done because they all had to be done at a certain place. And and we'll get into that in a bit. It, It had to be done in Jerusalem, had to be done at the temple. They couldn't have it anymore. It's obsolete. It's vanished away. What has it been been replaced by in the sense of fulfillment in Jesus Christ? John Owen would put it this way concerning God's people under the old covenant. He said they had the same promise of Christ. 
The same interest in him by faith, remission of sin, reconciliation with God, justification and salvation by the same way and means that believers have under the new. And whereas the essence and substance of the covenant consists in these things, they are not said to be under another covenant, as he would call it, but a different administration of it. This was so different from what had been established in the gospel after the coming of Christ that it has the appearance of another covenant. I think he's right on that. What, what appearance is there? What fulfillment, what greater part of it? It is the clear concept here found in verse 11 about knowing. They shall all know me. That is, everyone under this new covenant will truly know God. And in the old, most of them didn't. You can read about that in the Old Testament, and the rebellion against them. They had the promises, they had the covenant, and they kept breaking it because they didn't really know God. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. This promise of they shall know me in this explanation, if you will, of the new covenant is speaking about a true and personal relationship with God that is mediated through Christ alone. It is through his incarnation in time when he comes that he lives and lives that perfect life, fulfills all righteousness. He dies. He is buried. He rises from the dead and then ascends to the throne of God. This Jesus Christ is the fullness of all of those promises. These are the promises then that are kept. These are the promises that demonstrate the divine accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Hence, better in that sense because it is finished. It is accomplished. Those are expressed, those realities are expressed now in this new covenant. This greater fullness then is made known through Christ for all who put their faith in him. The final fulfillment, by the way, of this new covenant will be when Israel, as they're brought up here in verse 10 in chapter 8, to whom this promise was specifically made, will also one day return and in repentance and faith, and as John would say in Revelation 1-7, look on him whom they pierced. Or as Paul put it in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is redemptive. It is all through Christ. It is all for God's glory. So how will, if it's made to them, then, then how are we benefiting from it? How will we know God? It is through this means that Christ has chosen to accomplish this. You can turn, or I'll just read for you, from Ephesians chapter 2. 
the promises that were made here are ours in this sense. He says, remember, chapter 2 and verse 11 in Ephesians, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that were non-Jews, that's the Gentiles, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh and hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the status. That's the status in a spiritual sense and in their sense ethnically as well. They were outside, so how would they get it? Here's the answer. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the blood of the new covenant. These promises are ours through Jesus Christ in a true redemptive sense. And what promise are we focusing on today? And that is of truly knowing God in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 8. And here I do invite you actually to look at a text of Scripture because I want you to see it for yourself. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 1. Some of you have been going through 1 Peter in their ministry training class, so this may be familiar to you. And I'll just bring this up once again for you. Because I want to emphasize here this idea, at least in context here, when it says, they shall know me in Hebrews eight eleven, They shall all know me. He, he's not talking about knowing about God, about knowing facts. And when it says, oh, no one's going to have to teach his, his neighbor or his brother, because they're all going to know the Lord. He's not suggesting, in the very least, that you shouldn't have teachers. In fact, the preacher of Hebrews is a teacher, and he's, he's explaining the Old Testament text all along the way in his sermon. I mean, it is our commission to go out and preach the gospel, and as we tell people about Christ and call to repentance and faith, we do what? We then teach them all things that Christ has taught us, hence making a disciple. That, that's the, we understand that. But what he's getting at here in this, they shall all know me, is that this covenant is one of redemption, and it changes the very heart of mankind for those that are sealed by it. If you turn to First Peter, look at verse 3 of chapter 1. It expresses what this state of knowing God looks like. And I'll just begin at verse 3 because it glorifies God in Christ. He said, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a great praise that's given. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It it had to happen, Christ's resurrection. God orchestrated all of this. It says here that he, he would cause us to be born again, that is to be made alive, if you will, in Christ, to be 
resurrected from the dead in a spiritual sense to do what? To, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What a great state of being for those that are in Christ. And beyond that, you're being guarded, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If it were up to me, I would lose it. I'd be afraid I would lose some of that right and privilege. Here again, no wonder he begins, blessed be God and grace and glory to him. Rejoicing, he says, verse 6. You rejoice even in your current status and state of life here in this earth, this cursed life, if you will. For though a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested the genuineness of your faith. Why? Because you didn't abandon your faith when you got tested. The, those that went out from us were never among us, was, is the point here. Though you're, so now your faith is, is tested, and you, you remain, and therefore it's showing that it's genuine. It is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Fire isn't going to destroy gold. That's the point. You get the imagery? It may be then found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you looking forward to the, res- to the revelation of Jesus Christ? Are you looking for him to come? Can you say with the apostles, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Now stop and think right here. And, and now look at this expression and try not to weep. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And go ahead and intellectually explain that. I can't. Help me out if you can. How does affections like that come about? It doesn't come about through information. It doesn't even come about from the passion of a preacher who just desperately wants you to know God. This is about a new life in Christ. Raised from the dead. Rejoicing, even in the midst of unrejoicable times, if that's even a word. Where does this come about? You love him. I love Christ. I've never seen him. And that's the, that's the number one affection of my life. I don't act like it all the time, but I want it to be, for sure. So where does that come about? by his grace though you do not now see him you believe in him that's faith and you you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory you get that by faith you get that by faith that is generated by God in the new covenant when he declares you're going to know me You're going to truly believe this will be the fundamental expression of your heart 
you really love Jesus Christ. And no preacher can make that happen. No parent can make that happen. No friend, an associate. We, all we can do is point to that which is beautiful, that which is glorious, and that which is best. And pray that by God's divine grace that that would be made known. You see, that's what's being disclosed in this new covenant. It is a better covenant, and I'm just going to touch, if I can get to it in time, uh, I, I know I always bite off a bigger chunk of the apple than I can at times, but we'll try. At least four aspects of this new covenant that the preacher himself has already talked about in the text here in Hebrews along the way. Four aspects of this new covenant that lends itself then to a true personal experience of of knowing God that, that is heightened by what is accomplished in the fulfillment of the new covenant by Jesus Christ. I don't mean to be comprehensive, and I just hope I can get some of this here. But as to really kind of give you some direction as you think on these things and throughout Scripture, you can think through about how this truth is is woven through the tapestry of the entire Bible that we'll focus mostly in Hebrews. And that is, first of all, in the accomplishment of the new covenant, in this fulfillment of the new covenant sealed by Christ's blood, what you have first and foremost is I would call it an absolute or complete revelation of God through Jesus Christ. We're creatures, you and I, created by God. And you will only know God in a personal sense. You only really know him in that sense if he chooses to reveal himself to you. You may identify some of the attributes of God in creation because you're made in his image and you share those aspects to which he has, in which he has created you. We call them communicable attributes. Paul would tell the church at Rome that in creation you can see the incredible handiwork of God which is declaring his glory. And it is amazing whether you look at it in a a microscope or a telescope, either way, and all points in between, it's absolutely incredible if you ever stop to think about it. And the more you know, the less you really know. God's made himself known, of course, as I mentioned, in creating us in his image, mankind, and therefore we have what we might refer to as a conscience. We have a sense of what is right and wrong. We might disagree on particular issues, but we have a general concept of morality, right and wrong. That comes from some source beyond ourselves. It's God. But that only gives us an idea of a supreme being, a creator in that sense, a um, higher power, as some people might think, But it really doesn't enable us to know him. 
not to know him on a personal level in which our affections then might be expressed. That personal level of intimacy is only brought about through the self-disclosure of God. If you're in Hebrews, notice how he opens in that regard. In the new covenant, God sends his only son as the fullness of the revelation of himself. It begins, remember, in chapter 1, long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has done what? He has spoken by his son. Who, who is his son? The one who is appointed heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. So here is the creator of the world. Who is the creator of the world? It is the son. And who is the son? Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What he's saying is the, the, the son is God. So he sends the Son so that we would know God. This is the self-disclosure of himself, if you will. Who, who is this one? And he explained he upholds the universe simply by the word of his power. He created it, said, let there be light. And you know why there's light still now? Because he's saying, let there be light. He upholds that with the word of his power. This is why everything hasn't fallen apart and absolutely blown to smithereens. Do you know him? This is who he's disclosed. And then beyond that, after making purification for our sins, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God chose to progressively reveal certain aspects about himself through the prophets as the revelation was given. So they can gain a greater awareness of who God is. But there's no better revelation than this person the Son. It is only through the Son that we can fully know God and then have this personal relationship with Him. And here I invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll look at that in a couple places in John. John opens that beautiful phrase, in the beginning was God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's Jesus Christ. It's called the Word. And drop down to verse 14. The Word then became flesh and dwelt among us. This is God's revelation of himself. He now comes and walks in our shoes so, so that we could know him. He dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, then bears witness and cries out, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Of course he was. He was in the beginning was the word. For of his fullness we've all received then grace upon grace. The law 
It was given through Moses. But grace and truth, this is redemption. Where does it come? Through Jesus Christ. Now, this is the phrase I wanted to get into, but I want to put a little context to it. Look at verse 18. No one's ever seen God. No one's ever really seen him in his fullness and talked about it. This is the one who who knows God. The only God. Who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It is Christ who would explain God. That's how you would know. And apart from the incarnation, the, the life, the death, the resurrection, and I say, yes, even the ascension into the throne of grace, you really wouldn't know God in that fullness. This is all part of Christ and the new covenant. It is a call to a, a full personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're in John, just flip over chapter 10. And he talks about how he would make God known. That's the good shepherd passage that you're familiar with. And Christ says, I am. I am the good shepherd. And this is the phrase in which you say, I know my own and my my own know me. (laughs) Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. It, It is through Christ that you would know God. And Christ knows his sheep. Again, pointing to a real, genuine, personal relationship that you just can't contrive. Here, called and given to Christ as a love gift by the Father, his own, his own sheep, and, and they know. When he, when he speaks, they, they will hear, they will listen, they will respond. You, you, you don't have to sing just as I am a hundred times to get somebody to then come to Christ. They know him, and when they hear him, they will follow. The beautiful section in verse 16, it isn't just for those under, uh, that this promise was given under Judaism. He says in verse 16, that's what he's pointing to, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What do you mean? Non-Jews, Gentiles. He says, I must bring them in too. And they will listen to my voice. (laughs) And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why we preach Christ, by the way. So the sheep will hear his voice. It is Christ who would later say in chapter 14 to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he turns to his disciples and says, or to, the, to those that uh, would be uh, contradictory towards him, and even his disciples, which challenged him, he said, in that context, he says, show us the Father. You want to see the Father? Look to the Son. He says in verse 7 of 
John 14, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. How did that change of heart and affection come about? This is through the work of Christ mediated through the new covenant. The second thing I want to mention concerning this new covenant and knowing Christ, it, it, is, it is not only through this revelation that has been given, revelation in the incarnation and the completion in holy scriptures, which are God-breathed and sufficient for all godliness. But beyond that, in the personal relationship and knowing God, he adopts us as sons of God. Back to Hebrews, look to Hebrews chapter 2. The concept of family here as children, by sons I just mean human, I'm I'm still old school, (laughs) sons and daughters, human beings, children. The concept of family denotes a personal relationship. Outside of Christ, outside of the new covenant, our condition, our parentage, if you will, can be thought of as children of the devil. Paul would call that children of wrath, sons of disobedience in Ephesians chapter Children of wrath in that you you rightly deserve the wrath of God because of rebellion. Sons of disobedience in that you are of your father, the devil. The wrath comes because of rebellion. It's a right response. In the execution of the new covenant, Christ comes to rescue us from that wrath by sheltering us in his own family and adopting us to the family of God through him. This concept is mentioned actually in in Hebrews. Look at chapter 2 and and verse, I'll just begin to bring up Verse 10. For it was fitting that he whom and by whom all things exist, in other words, he's the creator, that's Christ, he's doing what? He's bringing many sons to glory. Here's the concept of a family to bring into a personal relationship, that's what I'm getting, to to really know God. Here it is Christ, and it's fitting that he would do it. He condescends to become a man, that we may have then a unique relationship to God through our connection and only through our connection with Jesus Christ. That's the idea of bringing then many sons to glory. This is the founder of salvation. He's made perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What's the one source? Jesus Christ, the new covenant. He's not then ashamed to call them brothers. 
I've been ashamed to point out my brothers at times. And maybe you have too. Maybe they were ashamed of me at times. But notice, in this relationship, he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. In fact, I'll tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Here is this idea of a personal relationship within the very family of God as it's talked about here. How does this get accomplished? He explains it in verse 14. Since the children share in the flesh and blood, he likewise himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then not only to destroy that power, but also then notice this, to deliver all through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, that is children of wrath, children of disobedience. And who does he help? Not angelic beings. There was, no, there was no plan of salvation, if you will, for the angels. They got just retribution for their rebellion. Instead, here, God in his grace, under this new covenant, does help somebody. Who does he help? He helps the offspring of Abraham. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Those that are of the promise in the new covenant. And so, therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brother's in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when he's tempted, he is able to help those having been tempted. This is the aspect of the new covenant that brings about a unique relationship in the life of the believer that indeed you are a very son of God. I'll show you two more verses and I'll finish with what I've got today. Actually, I'll just have you turn to one and I'll quote another for you. Galatians chapter 3, if you'll turn there. Galatians chapter 3. We've mentioned this briefly, but I want, to see, I want you to see it from a different perspective. Christ then comes in the flesh to make payment, appeasement, if you will, for the wrath of God so that you're no longer a child of wrath. That's what it's pointing to. He pays and atones for sin, adopts into the family, And he does this, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It was his plan and purpose to adopt us in the family and the benefit of that covenant is that we would truly know God. If you've turned to Galatians, we'll finish with this, Galatians 3.24. In the book of Galatians, they were dealing with the law as well. They were doing similar things that those were doing in in Hebrews in trying to kind of add some of those 
other elements to their uh, faith. To go back, if you will, and he points this out in verse 24 of chapter 3. The law is our guardian until Christ would come. In order that we might be justified by faith. The, the, the law drove them to recognize they were lawbreakers and they needed to find their rest in God, their trust in him. But now that faith has come, verse 25, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, and notice this, sons of God through faith. That is the better promise of the new covenant. The old one was a guardian. It pointed to. It was good. It caused you to to look to one who would come. Well, he has come. It's Jesus Christ. The, The payment for an appeasement for the wrath of God has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And more than that, he has ascended into the very throne of grace. So now you're all sons of God. God is truly our Father, and we can pray that way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. How would you be able to call God your Father? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This baptism is talking about a a, a regeneration of heart, an immersion into Christ, that, that it, there's a sense in which you have put on Christ like garments of holiness and righteousness that he has merited. And what does that make our status? There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female. You're all one in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are then yes and amen. Here's the question. Do you know him? Not that you know about God, but do you really know God? You haven't seen Christ, but do you really love him? And I hope you understand the expression here. If this comes about, it is through his work in your heart. And he has revealed all that you would need to know and find that in the promise of his word. It is him who would bring this about and draw in those that are far off, not just to come and visit God's house, not to be a guest in his presence, but one of his own. I'm not that good of a father, but I can assure you one thing. I would die for all of my kids. Imagine what God would do. Oh, that's right. He did. Let us pray. Father, what a great privilege it is to be redeemed. To to know what is sufficient for us to know for godliness and godwardness and then to be brought into your family and be called sons and daughters of God 
And what a great privilege. I pray we would rejoice in that, that it would be satisfying in dissatisfying times. In times of trials and troubles, may we, may we look to you and know that you will continually provide, continually protect, and continually guide us. May we look to you as our refuge and salvation and call many sons and daughters to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Take a moment now to think on these things. Father, thank you for your blessings that you've granted to us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would continually grow in grace and the knowledge of him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close with a hymn. I invite you to stand as Jerry comes to lead us. 619 in your hymn book. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God has made his light shine in our hearts. Let's sing about that today. Blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen. Father, we do bless each and every one of us now as we go. Father, we pray that you would bless the time in the fellowship hall and as we gather together and and to honor Gordon and Sue Ellen, and to also <clears throat> be able to partake of the food that's been provided by each and every one. We just pray that you would bless everybody, the food to their body, and, the, and those who prepared it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.